Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, Chad here. Sorry to invade your timelines and podcast libraries unannounced, but this week, Ben and I wanted to share our new podcast with you. This one is called Doing the Damn Thing, and it's something we're really excited about. It's a show where we're going to talk about some of the other things that we like, whether that be movies or books or music, some non-MMA-related stuff, but hopefully in a way that still interests the CME listening audience. Moving forward, uh, Doing the Damn Thing is going to be available exclusively to our top-tier patrons over on Patreon, so if you like what you hear from this freebie, please consider checking out all the other stuff we've got going on over at patreon.com slash event. Hope you like this one. Thanks. up everybody i'm chad that's ben and we are doing the damn thing it's the very first episode of our brand new podcast coming exclusively to the top tier patrons of the co-main event we're excited to debut this one for you uh we've never done anything exactly like this before we think that doing the damn thing will be a little bit power hour a little bit movie club a little bit book club and hopefully with some of the best parts of the proper mixed in too. Uh, we're going to be talking about all the stuff that we like and the stuff that we think you will like too, whether it be movies or TV or fighting or books or music, whatever. The spoken arts. Spoken word poetry. Yeah. The arts, basically. Wait, you, you brought some spoken word poetry, right? Oh, yeah. Big time. We couldn't, we couldn't get through the first episode of doing the damn thing without some slam poetry. Yeah, I mean, I just didn't want to be the only one out here talking about moonlight <laughs> on the horizon. Yeah, no, this you sounds know? like you've prepared this. You've, yeah. you've practiced this in front of the mirror. Yeah, I've, I've actually, I've timed it. It runs about 27 minutes, so we're going to want to spare some time at the end. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad. I'll uh, yeah. I'll make a note here to leave time for your, for your slam poetry. Cool. Uh, we think that it's going to be something different every week, and we expect doing the damn thing will grow and evolve over time. 
Uh, you know, we might even talk a little bit about our own lives more than we do on the shows that go out to uh, general consumption. Who knows? Uh, it's going to be a journey. And we're glad that you guys are taking this journey along with us. We've got a lot of fun stuff planned for the first episode today. But first, Ben, uh, I'm going to ask you how you're doing. As Robbie Lawler asked Nick Diaz in the cage a few weeks ago, uh, are you okay? Like in life? Like in life. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, longtime listeners of the podcast will know that my job with The Athletic ended at the end of August. And since then, I have come to suspect that maybe the key to happiness is not having a job. Okay. <laughs> because, you know, aside from the whole money thing, it really does just improve your days. You know, you just you could do whatever to a certain extent, especially when you're a father of two small children. But, uh, you know, the, the old life over here has seen some transitions in the past year. Uh, in addition to my job with the athletic ending, I mean, as you know, I uh, got divorced last year, went, bought a new house. Uh, my dog died over the summer. I mean, it's starting to sound like a country song, but yeah. I but I actually feel pretty good about all those things, except for the dog dying. I mean, that was sad, but inevitable, I suppose. Uh, got a new puppy just recently who has brought a lot of joy to everyone's lives around here. But, uh, you know, big transitions, mm -hmm. big changes. I would say this. Of, of what I've, some of the stuff I've learned over the last year during this period of transition. Uh, if you're, if you're thinking about divorce, you should do it. It's, it's, it's a good idea. It yeah. turns out it's a good idea. Wow. And everybody can be a lot happier that it works. It's better. It's better for absolutely everybody in the whole situation. Uh, one of the things I was, tr I was reflecting on recently was how it is sometimes difficult for me to, look around and kind of like stop, give myself credit for doing anything. I was sitting in this nice office that I got. You see it behind you. These walls, I painted those walls, chose that color. That's Chinese jade, by the way. Uh, like two months ago, two, three months ago, this office was a, just a dank, unlivable little space. And through a series of steps and doing stuff, it's fucking delightful now. This, this is my, my happy place to come to. You know, uh, not only do podcast stuff, do my writing down here, sit down here, read a book, play with my puppy, stuff like that. And to, to kind of stop and reflect and be like, all right, hey, man, look, you did some stuff. You accomplished some things. It's not so bad. You know, you, 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 you're always thinking about here's the next thing I should be trying to do. Or here's like what I, what I have not done yet that I still want to work on. Nicer once in a while to stop and be like, okay, give yourself some credit. You did some stuff. So yeah, that's you, how I'm doing. But you, then again, I'm sitting over here with 10 fully functional toes. So maybe it's easy for me to feel pretty positive. How you doing like in life? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. It's been a tumultuous time over here at our house. Uh, you know, I haven't brought this part up on the other shows yet this week, but a couple weeks ago, uh, I had two children who were named as close contacts uh, from their school to like a, another child who tested positive for COVID so wait, were they both the, the close contacts of the same other child? Do you want to take a guess of how many active COVID cases there were at this time at uh, my children's school? I've, I've got three kids. Two of them both go to public school. Ben, would you want to guess how many active COVID cases that there were at the school? Six. There was one. <laughs> what? There's one active COVID case in the entire fucking school and both my kids 
got named as close contacts to this child who tested but, positive, who now is doing fine, by the way. Uh, we're, we're happy to know that the, the child that actually had COVID was fine. Uh, it was but your a, kids are such different ages. Yeah. How, how is that possible? I got one in kindergarten, one in fourth grade. My children lucky enough to ride the bus mm. with the one positive COVID case at their school and sit with this child in the same seat. Oh, wow. Okay, so I was going to ask, like, does that mean they quarantined the whole damn bus? Is the is a ghost bus just running around there empty in the streets? I'm I'm not sure. Uh, I know that my kids got the big Q, and they were home for ten days, Ooh. all Ooh. the time. Neither of them ever developed any symptoms. They both stayed healthy, which again is is terrific. And uh, you know, thank the MMA gods for that one. Uh, my six year old started referring to this as ten day weekend. <laughs> nice and so oh they, yeah they i just, want a 10-day weekend they just kind of rumbled around the house for 10 days and you mentioned you know not having a job being home all the time really opens up your days uh you get the kids around mm-hmm. all the time and you find that 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 free time and that the ability to basically get anything done at all that vanishes yeah pretty quickly and it, it was actually a sort of a flashback to uh, the sort of suspended animation feel of like the early pandemic, we you know, during that hot minute when we thought that our culture might actually do something to try to stem the tide of the coronavirus and we were all going to stay home and like do the right stuff. And it just kind of felt like you were frozen in time yeah. and the rest of the world was going on. That's how it felt during this 10 day quarantine. So I'm excited to say the least to get the kids back in school. They are both back there now. Knock on wood, they will be able to stay there for uh, at least a short period without getting pulled out again. But the very day, Ben, that they returned to school, when I was excited about getting my life back, I broke my toe. (laughs) Day one, day one of my freedom, I broke my toe. And uh, having a broken toe is a stupid injury. I will yeah. f- I will freely admit that like I fully I understand that this is like a uh, a minor injury but uh it sucks man like it I'm I'm fortunate that it doesn't hurt that bad but I got to spend the next 4 to 5 weeks hobbling around uh with a fiberglass insert in my shoe and the doctor tells me I'm not supposed to flex my foot and then I will go back in uh in 4 to 5 weeks and I will get an x-ray and they will tell me if my old ass body has managed to heal itself and then I, talking, can, I can return to normal ambulation at that talking point. big toe? It's my ring toe. It's my fourth toe Psst. on my left oh, come foot. Come on. Come on. I thought we were talking big toe. I thought we were talking about the daddy toe. You're talking about ring toe. I Man, mean, just cut it off and move on. You know, my actually, my uncle did get his toe amputated. After That's bra- not true. After you breaking it, he broke it as a young man, and then it never healed properly. And just recently, he went in to get it amputated. That is not a story you want to hear right now. No, see? But, you as you know, Chad Dundas with the broken toe. Exactly. But I can't I can't shake it from my mind now. I can't shake it. So I guess this puts you on the the men from CrossFit. Yeah. Uh, just all preacher curls now? What are we, you know? Yeah, it's an shrugs, upper body business, baby. Going to get okay. into some real upper body focused stuff over the next few weeks. Going to get swole. I'm excited so about we, that part. When we see you roll up in here with the Batista traps, we'll be like, well, that's what happens when Chad breaks his toe. That's right. It's going to look like you're uh, hosting this show with Brock Lesnar all of a sudden. <laughs> all right. Let's let's uh, let's get into it here. This week on the show, actually the first couple of weeks on this show, we're going to spend some time talking about Muhammad Ali, arguably 
the most iconic athlete of the 20th century. The uh, the new Ken Burns documentary is out now on PBS. You can watch it through the PBS app on your streaming device, or you can rent it episode by episode over on Amazon Prime. Uh, if you can't watch it or you don't have time to watch it or whatever, that's fine too. We're going to try to shape this discussion in a way that uh, you will still understand it and it won't matter if you haven't seen uh, this documentary. And then coming up in the middle of the show, we're going to do our first ever Kraken Up. Uh, we'll talk about our beloved Seattle Kraken and their opening night loss to the hated and loathsome Las Vegas Golden Knights. Fuck the Knights. We'll look ahead to tonight's game against the Nashville Predators, and uh, we'll, we're going to debut our first ever capital G guy power rankings, which we are all obviously very excited about that. Uh, then after that, we're going to have an interview with our friend, our guy, friend of the show, Dan Brooks, about Norm McDonald. Uh, Dan got the opportunity to meet Norm and to hang out with him a little bit and write a profile of him in the New York Times Magazine, and they became, I guess Dan doesn't feel comfortable saying friends, but they became like texting acquaintances after that. So given that Norm MacDonald passed away a few months ago, we thought that uh, it might be interesting to talk to Dan about him and to get his perspective. Uh, and we ended up having a great conversation with him. So we're going to play that probably during the second half of this show. Uh, right now, though, let's get into this Muhammad Ali documentary, man. The uh, the Ken Burns documentary is split up into four episodes, pretty long episodes, actually. Uh, so we're going to try to talk about the first half of it this week, which will basically cover the years 1942 to 1970 in Ali's life. And then next week, we might circle back and talk about the last two episodes and the later part of Muhammad Ali's life. Uh, to start off, though, Ben, I wanted to get your thoughts just about Ken Burns, maybe the most famous and and most acclaimed American documentary filmmaker. I feel like just about everybody in the damn country had to watch the Civil War documentary like eight yep. times when we were in school. But he has gone on, obviously, to do a bunch of other stuff at this point. He did one on baseball, did one on Prohibition. Jazz did an earlier documentary about Jack Johnson, which I feel like makes this, uh, this Ali documentary interesting that he kind of circled back now to do Ali. And Ken Burns has a very distinctive style. Basically, like I think he sort of invented or at least popularized like the slow pan yes. across the still photograph. Uh, you just watched the Ali documentary. Are you feeling the Ken Burns vibe? Do you like what he brings to the table here? Well, I love Ken Burns shit. Just all of it. You know, it's, it's enough that Ken Burns's name alone, whether I think I'm going to be interested in the topic or not, is enough to get me to sit down and at least give it a chance. You know, he did one on the Dust Bowl, too. That was really good. Yeah. He did one on the history of country music, uh, I think, like last year, two years ago. That was really good. And so, obviously, when he does one on a subject that I do actually care about, Muhammad Ali, a man who I met in person, by the way. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm sure I've told you a story about meeting Muhammad Ali in person, but well, it's not, it's not that exciting. You're going to have to tell it on the show now that you brought it up. But I love the just the Ken Burns style, but you're right that it is very distinctive. I mean, I can see how that could bother some people just because it feels like, well, he knows one way to make a documentary series or at least one way to make it look. And this is the way. And it's enough that even, you know, I was watching some of this uh, with my daughters in the room not too long ago. And they don't know who Muhammad Ali is, really. They don't know much about him. They, they're just watching the thing because I have it on. And my oldest daughter mentioned something. He keeps doing the thing where he's zooming in on a, on a picture. And I was like, yes, you have identified it. You, you've been watching this all of seven minutes. And you have identified Ken Burns' thing. But you know what? Like, 
I like the thing. Uh, it does have a, a, a signature style visually, but one of the things that I think really comes through here that he is good at is a diversity of voices and of like sources that yeah. he is going to get into. Like the, he's not just going to tell the same story we all know or hear from the same people we always hear from. Like he really mixes it up where you've got like people who, you know, are writers or, you know, just like, culture analysts or whoever people who were like kids when Muhammad Ali was coming up and they remember it and then and, and they remember it from their experience you got a boxer in there gonna tell you about the finer points of some of what he's doing boxing and, and some of these different fights we're kind of gonna get deep in the weeds at times with the actual boxing scene of the time he's not afraid to do that where I think a lot of other people would worry man I'm gonna do like four two-hour episodes or whatever and i'm gonna i'm gonna have to tell you who sunny liston is i'm gonna have to tell you some of the lesser known i'm gonna have to familiarize you with the works of jerry cooney like a lot of people i think would be worried to do that or worried that you're gonna lose the the casuals the muhammad ali casuals or the pbs casuals out there and ken burns is not afraid to do it and i think that he the way he does that is one of the most impressive things because you you do feel like I'm like, even at times when I'm watching it with a person as a uh, with a pretty deep knowledge of Muhammad Ali's career and life and I'm going well I don't know about what this guy's saying what would Black Americans at the time have thought and then boom he'll he'll get you somebody who will give you a different perspective on it and you're like yeah no he really has kind of thought it through from all angles here yeah like it's interesting that you bring that up because. Like I said at the top of the show, Muhammad Ali is probably like the most iconic sports figure of the 20th century. One of the most iconic figures just in in our modern culture, period. And so much has already been done about him. Books written, documentaries made, some of them very good, that I honestly might not have thought that just a straight retelling of this man's life at this point could feel new and fresh and profound to me. Yeah. Uh, but it actually does. Like I was kind of surprised that, that Ken Burns was able to sort of pull that trick uh, to make this feel not only interesting, but like also kind of like compelling and new to people who, who have, uh, you know, some knowledge of Muhammad Ali to begin with. So uh, I enjoyed the first, the first two parts of this man. I have to say uh, this thing is narrated by Keith David who actually sounds a lot like Ron Perlman, who is the guy who does many of the UFC hype videos, which is like somewhat jarring to me. Cause at the beginning I was like, wait a second, is this the same guy who does the UFC voiceovers? Cause that's, that's both fitting, but also kind of strange. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's cool that like Keith David does the voiceover here, uh, which gives it a very distinctive sound. And the first part of this documentary, especially focuses on the forces that shaped Muhammad Ali and in many ways like he has a childhood that at this point I think we might view as as fairly typical in terms of shaping a, a professional fighter like a you know uh, grows up in in the throes of some poverty with obviously uh, oppression kind of all around him and with uh, like a boisterous but I think at this point admittedly abusive father and so like we see like all of these forces in his life that we have come to view in our jobs as being like oh yeah that's that's the stuff that forges a a professional fighter right there. Yeah, you know, you mentioned how you wondered what new you're going to get out of this. And I remember that being one of the criticisms that I heard just when this was announced that Ken Burns is doing a Muhammad Ali documentary. And people would be like, what is there left to say? What what stone has not yet been un- unturned? I mean, Will Smith played him in a goddamn movie, yeah. for Christ's sake. So it does feel like 
We've heard it. We know the story pretty well. And yet I come away from a lot of these feeling like I I feel like I'm getting more context on not just his life and like you say, the forces that shaped him, but things going on around him in the country at the time and just the the way those things were affecting him personally, especially you hear at times from uh, Robert Lipsight, who was a mm-hmm. longtime uh, sports writer, covered boxing for the New York Times for a long time. Also, his son, Sam Lipsight, hell of a fiction writer uh, that you might want to look up if you have it. And he was a young sports writer at the time when Muhammad Ali was coming up. And he, it's interesting to hear him talk about like the specific remembrances he has of being at press events or something with Muhammad Ali and watching these changes happen as he goes from being Cassius Clay and and then to Muhammad Ali, the effect that the the Nation of Islam had on him. A lot of that stuff to me was very new. And I gotta say, man, the the Nation of Islam stuff that comes up here. Yeah. I'm still not entirely sure what to make of it because this version of the story I felt like I had heard before was that Muhammad Ali sort of persecuted for his religious beliefs, which were considered outside of the mainstream by white America and potentially dangerous, his connection with Malcolm X, all that stuff. Um, and that that's what led to him, him changing his name and which w- was not accepted very readily by a lot of mainstream America. And when you get into some of this stuff here, all that other stuff is still there. But also the view you get of the Nation of Islam and the effect that it had on his life gets weird. Yeah, it gets real weird. I actually didn't know the like the profound extent to which the Nation of Islam and especially Elijah Muhammad controlled Muhammad Ali's life and career during what probably uh, otherwise would have been his prime. Right. And like, you know, I think we've all kind of heard the 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 general the generalities of like his friendship with, with Malcolm X and all this kind of other stuff. But one of the things that surprised me here is that like, man, it really casts Muhammad Ali's friendship with Malcolm X in a sad light. It does. It's kind of like, uh, I guess, you know, regardless of what you think about Malcolm X and, and his own iconic status in American history, I didn't expect to come into this thing, uh, feeling, feeling sorry for him, like feeling kind of bad about Malcolm X. But once Ken Burns delves into the, like the specifics of the relationship here, like I honestly did, like, it was just sort of like, it seemed like both of these guys legitimately liked each other, but that both, you know, Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad understood the importance of having a figure like Muhammad Ali on their side, having them essentially kind of like under having him essentially sort of like under their sway. And like one of the things, the other thing that the documentary does is it really points out uh, the switch that Elijah Muhammad made when once Muhammad Ali became the heavyweight champion, where before that he had kind of, he had eschewed sports and he had been dismissive of Ali and this other stuff. And then as soon as he becomes heavyweight champ Elijah Muhammad is is basically sort of like oh holy shit like this guy could like this guy could be a powerful uh bargaining chip essentially to have right and so he suddenly just like changes uh his mind immediately uh and becomes a big proponent of Ali but but Malcolm X was kind of trying to be there by his side the entire time and when Malcolm X gets gets crosswise with Elijah Muhammad and he gets uh suspended or kicked out of the nation of Islam and Muhammad Ali basically just kind of drops him also 
And that yeah. it's just like it's very melancholy. It's a very kind of like sad story to uh to see Ali kind of just essentially drop this guy who I think like legitimately considered him to be a friend. Yes, and seemed to have legitimately treated him as a friend even before he was somebody who looked like he could be useful. And I don't know if you could say that about Elijah Muhammad, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, as everybody is supposed to refer to him all the time. Which, I mean, for one thing, this at least lays out the story in such a way as to suggest that the whole reason he gets the name Muhammad Ali is a manipulative technique by Elijah Muhammad to rope him closer to, to to him and the nation of Islam and not have him be not risk him being more aligned with Malcolm X to be like when he, when there's a split coming between the nation of Islam and Malcolm X, there's a concern that maybe this guy has been with your friend for a long time. He's the guy who kind of got you into this, going to hear him uh, preach at his mosque in, in, in Harlem. And we don't want to risk that you'll side with him when you're a powerful figure now. So we'll give you this name. Like a thing that was normally not done and not done that quickly as a way to bring you back over this way and get you on our side rather than his, which is really kind of shocking to think about like, cause the, the name ended up being such a big deal, you know, yeah. a, a repeated thing that comes up in his life, uh, getting people to call him by his, his chosen name. And to think that that was given to him basically as a manipulative bargaining tool, uh, whether he realized it or not, that is sort of uh, sad and throws the whole thing in a different light. The saddest thing to me, though, was the note that on the day of Malcolm X's funeral, after he is assassinated and the people arrested for it were Nation of Islam members, the day of his funeral, Muhammad Ali is doing a boxing exhibition to benefit the Nation of Islam and does not go to the funeral. And I thought, man, how do you... How do you not live with regret after after making that choice? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, this documentary also certainly doesn't shy away from like letting you hear Muhammad Ali's own words and like right. letting letting you know like specifically the actual things that he was saying about a lot of these civil rights issues at the time in the in the sixties, and you know, kind of in the same way that Martin Luther King has been. Uh, you know, lionized and turned into this icon during modern times. Like the same thing has essentially happened to Muhammad Ali that at this point, like, Oh, everybody loves Ali. And like, he's this, this, uh, this figure for change. And this, this guy took a stand on all these issues. And he like, all of it is cast, uh, in this positive light now in, in, uh, in, in today's America, where we just try to try to pretend like not only did everyone support him, which clearly, it's obvious that that wasn't even kind of true. Right. But also, like, once you start to hear the stuff that Muhammad Ali is actually saying a lot about all of these individual issues, it kind of cast it in a different light for me. Because I feel like up to this point, maybe I had been given the sanitized version or something, or I had been given, like, the the just, like, general outline of the things that he stood for. But to hear him, like, praise jo- Governor George Wallace uh, for basically being against integration and to hear Ali, like give his thoughts basically being against integration. And clearly like, uh, Ali and the nation of Islam did a bunch of positive things like in the, in the black community around that time. But to like hear, hear like what he actually stood for kind of makes him sound like weirdly more conservative than I would have thought that he was, or as he has been kind of, uh, portrayed to be. 
Uh, and so like some of that stuff kind of made me think differently about Ali. And then you add in the, uh, the detail that he basically divorced his first wife because he couldn't control her enough. And he flat says at one point, the next time I get married, I'm going to get married to a teenager, uh, that I can control and like shape in my own image. And then he does, he gets married to like a 16, 17 year old girl. So like all that's just grown up in the nation of Islam. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of new to me. And, and like, made me think differently about some of the the things that I've thought about Muhammad Ali before. Well, it also, it's hard when you're hearing some of these facts laid out about how the nation of Islam was operating at the time. And you go, what you are describing as a cult, you know, you're describing this leader that uh, makes him, makes everybody call him the honorable Elijah Muhammad at every mention of his name. He has a newspaper called Muhammad speaks and which he, he dictates the editorial direction. You know, uh, he can just kick you out of your religion. If he, if you say something about it that he doesn't like, and he is wielding this power and impregnating his office staff. And if anybody says anything about that, then he'll kick him out. Yeah. And all that stuff and the degree of control that he wants over people's lives. And, and uh, like, we would just call that a cult if we saw it pop up today. We would feel like we know exactly what to call this. Um, and, you know, it, there was some of those moments where they show old news footage of Malcolm X being interviewed. Sometimes just like it seems like somebody's just pulling up on him outside an airport, like TMZ style or whatever, and just yeah. interviewing Malcolm X. Um, for one thing, I was surprised, you know, when my daughters are watching this with me, they see Muhammad Ali with uh, Martin Luther King and they say, oh, that's, that's Martin Luther King. I know who that is. And then when we see Malcolm X and all these clips, I go, do you know who that is? No, and they have no idea. Who, like that that part of the education, at least in the elementary school level in the civil rights era, just isn't making it through. And at one point when like a reporter is trying to do kind of a sneaky thing on Malcolm X where he's like, how, how long has... Uh, uh, Cassius Clay, I think he's calling him Cassius Clay, uh, been a member of the, of the black Muslims, as they keep calling him. And, he, and Malcolm X is like, I haven't heard him say that he is a member. You know, this is before he had come out publicly as a member. He's trying to keep his friends cover, like knowing he's going to have a hard time getting a title fight if people know that he is a member. And so he's like, I haven't heard him say that he is a member, you know? And the guy asks like some other kind of distraction question in the middle and then comes with, so were you instrumental in making and getting him to become part of the black Muslims? Like, just trying to get you to accept the premise of the question and go. And Malcolm X says something to the effect of, I think there's no man in America better equipped to speak for himself, (laughs) you know, than Muhammad Ali. And you go, yeah, okay. Uh, But then at the same time, when they show him going on a speaking tour, when, you know, boxing was not an option for him because of his uh, opposition to being inducted into the draft for the Vietnam War, Robert Lipside, I think, uh, offers the perspective, like, when he first started doing these college speaking tours, he was not good at it. Uh, This was a new thing to him. And as much as he could throw off a quip in an interview or press conference, he did not know yet how to just sit there and give a speech to a college campus group and and be good at it, get his message across, but also still be the same entertaining guy. But he learned like he just he worked at it and he got better. And they show some of those clips and because I think it's too easy sometimes to just imagine him like bursting fully formed from the head of Zeus. And just being the Muhammad Ali that we all know, rather than being a real person who stumbles along the way and and fails and tries and learns and and gets better at things. Yeah. Uh, On the boxing side of things, clearly, like this entire period of of boxing in America was dominated in some ways by by three guys, uh, Floyd Patterson, Sonny Liston, and then Muhammad Ali. Uh, Those are the three fighters that I think more or less defined that that era of boxing 
Uh, and like, maybe you could make the case that in many ways, those three guys kind of like defined the black experience in America during that time too. Um, and they were three guys who were just wildly different, like not only as fighters, but just as men. Uh, and this documentary, I think does a really good job, you know, without being kind of overbearing about it, but also presenting Floyd Patterson and Sonny Liston and Muhammad Ali to you kind of like on their own terms and who they were as people. Uh, and Sonny Liston, especially like, uh, he's another guy in addition to Ali who has been talked about and written about a lot in, in the times basically kind of after his boxing career. But, uh, you mentioned that there are so many great interviews in here in this documentary. And I feel like the crime writer, Walter Mosley, uh, like maybe unexpectedly seems like one of the more right vital yeah. interviews in here to me. And like the, the part that really struck me is when he talks about Sonny Liston being into his mind, an American hero, uh, just because of all of the things that he went through and how hated he was, and and like how he was never really given the credit he deserved either as a fighter or just as like kind of like a survivor in his life. And the other thing that this that this documentary kind of made me do, at least through two parts, was kind of like um, maybe rethink a couple of things about Sonny Liston, like not necessarily change my opinion about the guy, but just sort of be like. Uh, you know, Walter, Walter Mosley, I think had a point just about how the, the forces of America that also shaped Sonny Liston and then like essentially turned him into this hated figure among a lot of people, uh, or, or like pitied figure. I don't even know the right way to, to, to talk about Sonny Liston. Cause uh, clearly a lot of people thought he would beat Muhammad Ali in both of their fights. But like, uh, I don't know. It just made, it gave me like a different kind of respect, I guess, for, for Sonny Liston. Right. You know, and I mean, I think that you can make that argument that Sonny Liston is kind of a tragic figure in American sports, but that also what you see with the benefit of this much hindsight, I think it's a lot easier to look at people decades later and go, here are the ways that they were shaped by their times. And it's true also of Muhammad Ali, like being shaped by the, you know, you're, you're facing this friction in your society and what you decide to do with it and about it. Uh, that, you know, that is both you acting upon it, but you being acted on by it. And I think you can make the same case with Floyd Patterson that, you know, while Floyd Patterson doesn't come off super great here and definitely is treated very harshly by Muhammad Ali, but you're also, you know, when you get the perspective of like Floyd Patterson coming up in the era that he did, he's trying to make it as a professional boxer and he's a, you know, and is a great boxer and a heavyweight champ, even though he's not a heavyweight at one point. And it's easier, I think, now to have a little sympathy when he is setting himself up as like the the champion for white America and Christian America. And it doesn't look great now, you know, and but at the time you can understand like how this guy might have felt. This is how I'm going to get along. Yeah. And man, they show that clip of the first like minute, first seconds of the fight where Ali just comes right out and basically just roughnecks him. Like it's not even boxing him yet. It's just like comes out and puts a hand right on the back of his neck and is just sort of moving him around in the ring as if to show you like right away, you you are not a match for me physically. And he's not. I mean, he's undersized and he's old and he just doesn't have the the skills, the, the, the tool set to take on that version of Muhammad Ali, certainly. And you see that and then you see him keeping him around in that fight just so he can punish him. And I I think you do get a good perspective from the people you hear from in this, that even the people who 
counted themselves among the, the, the few who loved Ali even then, they're going, this was not great. This was not his, his better self, what he did to Floyd Patterson. Yeah. A lot of the boxing footage is still uh, impressive and arresting. Yeah. Like to see Muhammad Ali f- throw the combinations that he threw and like just how he moved around the ring. And they, they talk a lot about how, uh, you know, some of the stuff that he did was technically incorrect, but he was just kind of like so good as I think we see athletes do a lot of the time, like these kind of like uh, insanely good transcendent athletes can do stuff that other people can't do. And they end up like cutting some corners. And with Muhammad Ali, I think it catches up to him later in life. But in this, you know, the first half of this thing, we see him primarily as a young man at the top of his game. And the way that he is fighting is so different than everybody else that even in 2021, I was watching it and I was kind of amazed just to see him, uh, you know, throw the combinations that he threw and and just basically go out there and light somebody up with like a 10 punch combination. Uh, and then and to do it seemingly effortlessly is still impressive. Like right. 50 years later. Well, to be, to move as smoothly as he does to to evade as easily as he does to also have a, just a hell of a chin when you do get caught. That, that you can take it. And then when he fires back, just stinging combinations. That right hand, when he's just, he's throwing that in there in the middle of the combination where he's just basically blinding you with a jab and then just a stinging right cross that he can throw out there at will. And it, especially to see a guy who is on top at that level for as long as he, he was, it's incredible. I mean, we know how this goes in fight sports. That you you come up and if you're lucky, you are, you know, the best heavyweight in the world for like a season, you know, a year, two years, something like that. I mean, he comes up, he takes the title from Sonny Liston in 1964 and, you know, by six, seven years later, he's still looking very much like a man who may be in his prime. And that you just don't see that, especially among heavyweight boxers. It's kind of amazing. And I, but I also appreciate how uh, we get at points really detailed analysis, like of the you know the, the fight he has in England with Henry Cooper, and one where you're going like uh, like or or wasn't the the Henry Cooper one? It was uh, the one that he wins uh, via a pretty narrow decision. Um, oh, yeah, I and the, the guy's name that he was fighting, but I know the one I know the fight that you mean. Yeah, but and they're doing a pretty good job of. Uh, like breaking that one down to analyze it and being like, here are how it's not like he was unbeatable. People could figure out the style. A few people could figure it out. But even then, he just has so many different things that he can do so well that it's it's just really incredibly hard to beat him. But also, when you're watching some of these clips of him going up against Sonny Liston, one of the things to me that really made me think about how the fight game, some things, as, some aspects of it don't change. Everybody being so sure Sonny Liston was going to just murder him because they were yeah. awed by the, the power and the ferocity of Sonny Liston. And he goes out there and just schools Sonny Liston through the entire fight. And then when they rematch, Sonny Liston is still the favorite. He's the favorite in the rematch after yeah. that. That's fucking incredible, man. Yeah. And and obviously, this, the, you know, the other thing that this documentary specifically does, it shows almost the entire second Sonny Liston fight, which I thought was like a a good choice from like the filmmakers because that's the uh that's the the controversial one that's the one that everyone thinks might have been fixed and the one where Sonny Liston 
uh, went down from from a, a punch that I think to our 2021 MMA eyes like seems kind of normal to me. Like, oh yeah, I can see a guy getting knocked out by that shot. But at the time in boxing was very controversial. And like Ken Burns does a good job bringing you a bunch of like kind of diverse voices talking about what they think about that and, and whether it was fixed or not. Uh, but, then, but like one of the things that I also noticed about what has changed in the fight game is Muhammad Ali out here being the heavyweight champion of the world at like 188 pounds, 194 pounds, and Sonny Liston being described as the big ugly bear that Muhammad Ali keeps referring to him as, as being this like hulking brute. And that dude is like 6'1", 215. And it's just like, man, we just watched Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury go out there and fight for the heavyweight title a week or two ago. And Tyson Fury was like 270 pounds, six foot nine, 270 pounds. You're just talking about like... A d- different beasts at this point yeah. are out there in the heavyweight division than in the 60s and, and early 70s. Yeah. So this documentary, the first two parts of this take us up to uh, through the victory over over Jerry Quarry and part uh, two ends, you know, pretty much right in the ring with him beating Jerry Quarry, but ends on the sort of ominous warning that Ali has lost a step during his time that he was forced to spend away from, from boxing. And uh, next week we'll talk about some of the stuff that that happens later in his career and like continues to, to shape him. And we'll talk about our feelings about the documentary and the kind of figure uh, that Muhammad Ali ultimately becomes. We'll talk about that stuff next week. Right now though, Ben, without further ado, let's do cracking up. Release the Kraken. Madison Bowie, they grind along the boards. Out of the scrub, Bastion in front. Things didn't totally go the Kraken's way in the season opener on the road against the hated and loathsome Las Vegas Golden Knights. Fuck the Knights. Uh, They ultimately conceded a 4-3 defeat, but Ben, it's a long season, and there are going to be a lot of games, and the Kraken gets another chance tonight on the road against the Nashville Predators, as I mentioned, where Seattle is again uh, a slight underdog. I'm just going to ask you, Ben, what did you see from the Kraken in game number one, either good or bad? Well, first of all, I just got to say it one last time, and then I can leave it alone. Distinct kicking motion motherfuckers yeah the go-ahead goal that puts the the vegas knights up from four to three the margin that they ultimately won by uh you know in some ways i feel like we're showing our our naivete here because i'm out here watching what is essentially my first or second nhl game all the way through you have watched more than i have but i feel like hockey people have just taken this in stride that this is like uh obviously uh, the right hockey call and like we want to uh we want to promote goals and we want them to be high scoring affairs. But I feel like this is one of those instances where when you view it with outside eyes, it's one of those things where, where a sport has advanced to the point where things have gotten silly in, in various aspects. And you see this in pro football a lot, right? With like, at this point, nobody knows what the hell a catch is in the NFL. And like, we're just analyzing everything to death and we got the instant replay and it's such a game of inches and like hockey as apparently, 
evolved to this point where we're going to we're going to take 5 minutes to determine that this thing that was that in any other walk of life would obviously be called a kick especially when you see it from the alternate angle where you can see the guy kind of like lift his toe off the ice and kick the puck into the goal would obviously be called a kick but in hockey nope that's not a kick we've decided i just I guess I shouldn't have expected anything better out of the loathsome, detestable, dirty, frankly uncouth Las Vegas Golden Knights. But that's fine. You know what? We'll see again. We'll see again, Golden Knights. I saw a lot to like out of the Squid Squad out there on Tuesday night, Chad. Yeah. You know, obviously it's a team that is still trying to gel, trying to figure out who we are, what kind of team we are, what's our identity. Bunch of players taken from all over the league, thrown together, thrown together, frankly, in some very fetching away jerseys. We just got to say it, the, the branding, all the, the the look of the Krakens on point. And, uh, you know, we're still figuring some things out. I think really maybe what we saw is exactly what Coach Hack has been trying to tell us about, which is that we need to play a full 60 minutes. Yeah. Because... In moments and for for large portions of this game, for basically the entire second period and and most of the third period, this looked like a really good team. There are just a couple moments there in the first period where we we gave up big plays, gave up big opportunities when we didn't need to. And, you know, if you you slip up even just a little bit, some of these teams can take advantage of it. We need to just turn in a full solid 60-minute performance. But then I think this team can go places, Chad. I, I, I liked what I saw. I mean, if nothing else, I think that the Kraken are going to be a fun team to watch because they're going to attack, they're going to play fast, they're going to be aggressive, and ultimately, I don't know how many hockey games they're going to win. We'll have to wait and see at the end of the season where we wind up there, but I think it's going to be an entertaining brand of hockey because that's what they want to do is they want to uh, be aggressive and and pressure the other team and, and go after the other team's goal. And they were doing that in this game, and, and it also made me wonder if like this is also going to be a frustrating brand of hockey to watch because especially in the first period of this thing uh the kraken came out just the way they wanted to they wanted to to like i said uh be on the other team's side and they wanted to be around the goal and they wanted to to pester and fluster and and take a lot of shots and they did all that and then you just get a couple of points where the las vegas golden knights beat you in transition and all of a sudden you turn around and you feel like you've essentially dominated the early portions of this game, but you look up at the scoreboard and it's two nothing. You're down two nothing because the Knights get these kind of like breakaway uh, early goals. And so that, you know, that's that it's, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a little feast or famine. If I may employ a sporting cliche here that uh, the Kraken are going to play their game, but it seems like they're going to, they're going to get caught doing it a couple times. Yeah. All right, let's do this thing that we're excited to do here before we rack up, wrap up, cracking up. Capital G guy rankings for the week. Uh, I know we've we've all got some picks. Like I said, it's early in the season yet, but here we're going to talk about the guys that are under consideration to become the co-main event podcast capital G guy or guys on the Kraken. Why don't you go ahead and, and start us off, Ben? Who's your first guy that you're looking at? Well, I'll tell you what, this will be no surprise to anybody who joined us for the watch party because I, I really liked what I saw out of him, had a lot of good stuff to say to him. Number 13 in your programs, number one in your heart, Brandon Tanev yeah, out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, out there in the left winger spot. I'm telling you, 
the guy's a damn spark plug. That's what he is. Every time you see him on the ice, it feels like he's up in the mix. You know, he's he hustles. You know I love a player who hustles. Uh, he he just getting after it. Had a breakaway opportunity there. Just kind of sort of lost the handle after making a, a dope move there on Robin Leonard. But I'm expecting big things out of Brandon Tanev. And I just like his style of play. Yeah. I like a guy who shows up, makes a weird face for his profile photo, and then is just going to bring it to you on the ice. Also, once I started reading about uh, my, my guy Brando, Chad, did you know he was cut from his Bantam hockey team because they thought he was too small? Oh. Didn't play hockey the rest of high school and then got recruited to play for Providence College and was like, all right, I guess I'll take this up again. Uh, I mean, went undrafted. I, like, I don't want to say that he is like a Michael Jordan figure being cut from like the JV basketball team or something, but maybe he kind of is. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Brandon Tanev, I feel like, is one of the real obvious choices to become one of the co-main event podcast guy. He's he's very active out there on the ice. And then uh, he might tell you he saw a ghost off yep. the ice. You might ask him a question about why he made that funny face in his team picture, and he'll tell you he saw a ghost. So I like everything that I'm seeing, frankly, from Brandon Tanev, both on and off the ice. I'm going to start with a dark horse okay. here, Ben. Uh, one of the guys under consideration to become one of my guys on this team, Geeky. Morgan Geeky, the fresh-faced youngster, scored a goal in this game out there against the hated and loathsome Las Vegas Golden Knights, plays the center position. I believe he's 23 years old. Uh, you know, I think he could be a real guy candidate if he becomes a consistent scorer. And one of the things that that I like about him, man, you never expect Morgan Geeky. Like, take your eye off the puck for a second. Morgan Geeky's going to get up there, score a goal. That's what's going to happen. Geeky. You just like, I feel like you just want to say geeky. I mean, I that doesn't like that's hurt. a part of this for you. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. That doesn't hurt. But you can just go ahead and take a take a look at the guy, man. Like, invite that guy over for dinner with your grandma. And he's gonna he's gonna eat the corn and the the turkey and the stuffing, and he's gonna tell her it's the best food he ever had in his life. <laughs> okay, all right. Wholesome, wholesome Morgan geeky. Yeah. Um. All right, you ready for my next possible guy? Yeah. Who's your next guy? My next guy, Jamie Oleksiak. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, another the real big solid guy, choice. The big guy on defense here, standing six foot seven, weighing in a little over two fifty. We saw him put the body on a couple times here on Tuesday night. Also, uh, I'm just going to tell you this and see what it does for you. When he was first coming up, nicknamed Big Rig <laughs> by his teammates. I mean, come on, man. Plus, uh, his sister. Penny happens to be Canada's most decorated Olympic athlete. Wow. What She's she won do? a combined total of seven medals at the, the Summer Olympics in 2016 and 2020. Uh, she's a swimmer. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I just, you don't expect, if you, if you ask me what sport Canada's most decorated Olympic athlete came from, I would not say swimming, but the Elixiacs, they don't play in that family. The, yeah. you know the well, big she, rig is she like six foot five how big is she like she's let's see penny penny Olixiac. uh oh shit they're gonna give me her height in meters get the fuck out of here uh <laughs> six one okay she's yeah. six one so that's, yeah that's 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 a swimmer right there 
Uh, yeah, yeah Alexiak, when he if he's out there on the ice, you know about it. And if he puts a body on a guy, it's hard to miss. So another another real good choice, I think. Another real promising guy candidate there. Uh, ben, I'm the you big know, rig. Maybe I'm voting with my heart here, but my second possible guy candidate is just going to be Gruby. Philip Grubauer, the German in the net for the Kraken, had a tough start, man. Had a tough start to the Vegas Knights game, gave up a couple of early goals, but then he actually played uh, pretty damn well, in my estimation, for the for the bulk of this game. He stopped a ton of shots in the second period as the Kraken kind of stormed back to tie this thing up, uh, and I, I guess if you're going to have a hockey team where the goalie's not one of your guys, you might be in trouble. So I'm going to put okay, Ruby out there. I was going to say that you're kind of setting yourself up for heartbreak kind of on any team by having the goalie be one of your guys because a goalie is going to go through some things. Yeah. You know, I mean, one good thing, they're always on the ice, you know, so you don't have to look and see, are they on? Are they are they off this shift? They're always out there. Very but distinctive the, look. Easy to find. Also, though, so far right now, you got on your radar geeky and groovy. Yep. Are yeah. you working a gimmick? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out as this thing as this thing uh progresses all right who's your third guy who's the third guy you're looking at here okay rounding out my potential trilogy this week jordan leslie eberly okay yeah eberly now he he's been on my radar for a while mostly because this nhl video game i used to play <clears throat> when he was on the uh the new york islanders he'd always just tor- torch me on this game man he just he right when you, you fuck up, there's Eberly to put it in the back of your net. And I was just like, God damn, Eberly. Now he's on our side, though. Now, I, when I heard the Kraken picked up Jordan Eberly, I was like, okay, here we go. Number seven out there, playing right wing. Uh, and had a good look early on in this one and put one off the crossbar in the first period. But I think that that guy, he's going to find some open ice. He's going to make some plays happen. He was instrumental in setting up that second goal there. Uh, I expect good things out of Jordan Eberle, and I'm keeping an eye on him. Let's just yeah. say that. I like that. I like that. It sounds like you like him so much you're getting a little choked up even just talking about him. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Getting a little dusty in here. Well, I mentioned that Tanev and Alexiak were maybe obvious choices to become our guys, and I got to say my number three guy here. Uh, maybe the most obvious guy potential on the Kraken for the Cone Main Event podcast, and that is it's just Giordano, man. Mark Giordano, the, the 38-year-old captain. How can you not love Giordano out there skating around in the pregame with his bald-ass head looking like uh, one of us, looking like an old man just out there trying to squeeze the last couple of years out of his athletic prime? Uh, as I believe our guy Cat Pope said in the live watch party on on. Uh, on Tuesday night, Giordano skates into training camp and he's immediately got the C ironed on his chest. That's the kind of guy he is. My last guy under consideration here, the captain, Mark Giordano. Marky Gio. Somebody had to say him. So I got Groovy, I got Geeky, and I got Gio. Triple G over here. Okay. Didn't you, mean you to do that, but that's just how just, it came out. It's just a different gimmick than what I thought. All right. Like I said, we got the Nashville Predators tonight. Slight underdogs are the Kraken. We're going to keep our eye on that one. And um, I guess maybe we'll be back here next week to uh, to do another Kraken up. It's been mentioned. This is not the first time this has been mentioned, but a, a five-game-in-eight-day sprint to start this season for the Kraken almost entirely on the road before you finally get home to the friendly confines over there in Seattle. And those of you who are wondering, okay, we're playing the Nashville Predators tonight, uh, 
who is their MMA equivalent, according to our guy, Cat uh, Pope, out there. You know, did what, what I still, I'm going to end up referencing this all season long because frankly, I need it to understand everybody. Cat uh, Pope writes that sitting on the edge of what should be the start of a rebuild, this offseason they traded away a key piece in Ryan Ellis, their longtime goalie Pekka Rene, just retired. Juice Soros, nailed it, is poised to be a great replacement, even earned some Hart Trophy votes last season for league MVP. But overall, this team appears to have their best days behind them with little to show for it. MMA equivalent, Stephen Wonderman Thompson. Okay, I like that. This may, That makes him seem beatable. We're going to go out there tonight yep. get the first W for the Kraken. Uh Check up, check back in next week. We'll let you know how things are going with our love for the Kraken. Right now, though, we got this conversation we had with our guy Dan Brooks about Norm McDonald. We're going to roll that out for you right after this break. All right. We are joined now by our good friend Dan Brooks. Writer, reader, editor, extraordinaire, possibly theater art guru. Dan, did you like get a minor in some manner of theater production at the University of Iowa? I have a bachelor's degree in theater from the University of Iowa. It's a, I was a double major in theater and English, but I considered theater my primary major on account of the superior parties. Okay. Yeah, wow, this is like major. all-star nerd territory for dan brooks here yeah it's incredible i could talk about anything from the band ockerville river to a play that is basically like the band ockerville river that's amazing that's amazing uh well we wanted to bring dan on for the first episode of doing the damn thing to talk to him a little bit about norm mcdonald dan i know that you went and hung out with Norm McDonald a few years ago and published a terrific profile of him in the New York Times Magazine that came out in August of 2018. Obviously, as everyone knows, Norm McDonald died last month uh, after a long, but I guess not very well publicized battle with cancer. He was 61 years old. We thought that it would be interesting and informative for the listeners to have you on to talk a little bit about Norm and what your experience was with him and kind of your thoughts after his passing. So I guess uh, just for starters, man, tell us a little bit about the profile that you wrote of Norm Macdonald and how that came together. Uh, so I pitched the, uh, the profile of Norm uh, to my editor at the Times Magazine. His name is Willie Staley. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Willie Staley and, and experience the, the mildly jarring, but ultimately very entertaining experience of his Twitter feed. Yeah, it's a good um, Twitter. That's a good Twitter account. I recommend it. Really good. He is also the man behind shitty New Yorker cartoon captions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Best Instagram in the game. It's very good. Um, anyway, check him out. But I, uh, I pitched him a story about Norm ahead of his Netflix show. Uh, he had a talk show on Netflix that uh, premiered in 2018 called Norm MacDonald has a show. Um, and initially I pitched, uh, I pitched Willie about it and he was like, I like this pitch, but we have a guy who has dibs on any Norm story. Um, and so we got to let that guy pitch first. Uh, and then that guy, uh, I guess, ultimately never filed a pitch, even though he said he was gonna, uh, and I darted in there and snapped it up. So wow. that is how, uh, yeah, that's how so I got that. So job. you got this 
feature off the back of someone else's laziness. Exactly. Um, and as, as Wayne Gretzky said, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. That's very, that's topical and applicable here. I guess why out of everyone in the world that you could pitch the New York times magazine on a profile about why would you choose Norm Macdonald? In my case, I'm going to say like personal fixation. Uh, I have loved Norm Macdonald since college. Um, when my, uh, my roommates and I had cable and he would appear, uh, on like Comedy Central. This is back like in the late 90s when Comedy Central's programming relied very heavily on reruns of like stand-up comedy showcases. Um, and so they would always run like very young Norm MacDonald uh, doing stand-up about like wiener dogs and riding in the backseat of a car, like Jerry Seinfeld style observational humor. Uh, and then at the same time, he was on Weekend Update as the anchor uh, on, on Saturday night live, you know, the fake news program on Saturday night live. And he was so funny on that show, uh, in part because he seemed to be like doing something they didn't necessarily want him to do. Like he was always, uh, doing something very different tonally from the rest of the show and his delivery and just general presentation was very different from the rest of the cast. Um, and then also around that time, he did like his sort of infamous appearance on Conan O'Brien with Courtney Thorne Smith, where he made fun of the movie that she was trying to promote. So in college, at least Norm was to us like this sort of maverick figure who's also just very, very funny. You know, I was interested in, in reading, uh, especially the thing you wrote for Gawker after Norm Macdonald died. Because, you know, I remember the New York Times Magazine feature that you initially wrote, and then you kind of revisited the topic uh, after his death and, and really presented the theory that maybe Norm Macdonald didn't get as big as he could have or should have because of his commitment to his idea of what comedy was. And so one of the things that kind of surprised me a little bit was the, the vehemence of his views about the stuff that comedy was not. And uh, like, I want to read a part, this is from your, your Gawker story uh, about Norm Macdonald. Watch, and this is a quote from him. You watch TV and every joke kills. It's like you're insane or something, he told me. He had a mental list of responses to jokes that weren't laughs, a kind of litany of human dishonesty. He disliked it when people said a joke, quote, works on so many levels. He felt the same way about, quote, I see what you did there. And those exclamations that fill the place where a joke should be. Words like touche and awkward. He hated the rimshot noise. He hated it when people said that's funny instead of laughing. Quote, there should be a different word for a joke that people laugh at, he told me. There should be a higher one. I'm interested a little bit when you were talking to him for the initial uh, New York Times Magazine story. How did you guys get into that? How much time did you guys spend just sitting around talking about comedy theory? Um, if I were going to ballpark it, I would say we we spent a total of 10 to 12 hours sitting around talking. <laughs> um, and probably a third of that was comedy theory. Um, Norm has a reputation for being kind of evasive, uh, and like not off-putting because he's, he's like very polite, very courteous and was super nice to me from like the very moment that I showed up, uh, on the set of his show. But, um, he's also like a somewhat, he's got a reputation for being reserved. Um, and I found that not to be the case at all. It was like, difficult logistically to set up the interview with him like the the terms kept changing and he claimed to have like forgotten that i was coming to town once i arrived 
Um, but like once he got going, he spoke passionately and extensively about comedy um, and what he thought about it. And it gave me the impression that he he cared very much about it for its own sake. Like, obviously, he wanted to be famous. He wanted to be known and liked because you don't you don't have a career in comedy by accident. That's just like very difficult on its face. Um, but at the same time, he really did seem just like fascinated with jokes. Uh, he talked a lot about the. Uh, the famous uh, Henny Youngman joke, take my wife, please. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Which is like a, a punchline that I sort of grew up hearing as a kid and like knew as a joke before I even understood what it meant or why it was supposed to be funny. And like he pointed out that if you were going to deliver that joke to an audience, you'd be like, you know, talking about something and then be like, take my wife, please. And like that, please is supposed to change the meaning of take my wife from like, take my wife, for example, to take my wife away from me. But he like, he pointed out that whenever you saw like footage of Henny Youngman delivering the joke, he didn't pause at all. He would just say, take my wife, please. And then the whole audience would like applaud. Um, and he identified that as something that was like very terrifying to him and that it was sort of the equivalent of like death for a joke when it stops being funny and becomes like a, a cultural touchstone or a reference or something that people receive in some way other than laughing at it. That's and a catchphrase like, at that. Point. Yeah. When it stops being a joke and it starts being your WWE catchphrase. Yeah, exactly. And I think that he was like, I think he resented that tendency in comedy. Um, the tendency for like, for jokes to stop being funny and just become references and for comedians to maybe focus less on being funny and instead focus on like persona or appealing to like their audience's views or like whatever, all the other things people do besides just write jokes. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you write about in the New York times piece that you spoke to just a second ago is that Norm did a lot of different stuff at a lot of different shows on TV and they were all, uh, well-received, but none of them lasted very long. In fact, you write in the story, the dedicated fan will identify two patterns in his television work. It is invariably funny and it is invariably canceled. What do you make in retrospect, I guess, of his career overall and why he didn't maybe become celebrated or, or reach the, the heights of fame that you might've thought he would just, just on talent alone. And a lot of that you know, like we mentioned a second ago, has been attributed to like his dedication to craft. Like he was more dedicated to his craft than he was actually being successful. Do you find that that holds weight or is there another reason why he never really found one thing and was able to stick to it? I think that argument holds weight as long as you don't take it as like a totalizing explanation. I do think that in a lot of his work, there is like a refusal to make concessions to the audience. Um, an example would be like, the way Norm MacDonald has a show uh, was shot. You would see like crew members uh, walking around. It was like, it was very, very clearly shot on a soundstage insofar as there was like sets from other shows and stuff stacked up in the background. Um, and sometimes it would be in ways that seemed intentionally alienating and not just accidental. For example, a PA would like walk through the shot 
which is something that wouldn't happen by accident on any on any production. Like that was something they were doing on purpose. Um, so I think that was part of it. I think Norm really enjoyed making the audience come to him a little bit. Um, I also think that his like personal habits were not conducive to success in the industry. He was not, by his own admission, he was not good at schmoozing. Um, he lived in LA, but he didn't drive. So he would often just like stay at home all the time. Um, he told me about a situation where uh, Dave Chappelle was doing like a sort of surprise last minute set at the comedy store. Uh, and uh, a pre meltdown Louis CK had decided to do a set that night as well. Um, and the booker from the comedy store called him and was like, Hey, you should come down here. And like, you can, you could basically open for these guys. And that would have been huge at that point. Chappelle had not performed publicly in years. Um, and Louis CK was at the top of his game uh, then. And Norm told me that like he ultimately decided not to do it because it would have been a hundred dollar Uber ride. Um, and because he was, yeah. And because he was already home and like, I get it. Some sweatpants on. Yeah. 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 And he was wearing sweatpants most of the time that I hung out with him. Okay. But like, that's, that's not really the reason I would think. Um, like maybe, maybe he really was that eccentric, but I think there's an element of like pride there where he didn't want to open for his friends. Um, and I think maybe there was some element where like he was happy with the level of success he had reached as like a nightclub comic and what that called on him to do. Um, and maybe didn't want to like turbocharge his career at age 55 or however he old, however old he was when that happened. Well, I mean, you mentioned at several points, little things about him where he just seemed like, okay, there's some weird stuff going on with this guy. Like even the stuff where <laughs> you mentioned at one point, uh, he's eating cut fruit with a straw and I'm right. going like, okay, like there is definitely some stuff. Like, I don't know how, how much you wanted to get into it, but like, is there a way to, when you're interviewing somebody like that to be like, okay, look, here are the following things I've noticed about you that seem weird. What's up? Like, did you guys talk about some of these peculiarities of his? I wish I had done that. Um, I did not in part because like, you know, once you, once you get him going, you don't want to, you don't want to spook him. Yeah. Um, but like, I think some of it, some of it is evident in that like one, he's like a very, an obviously very intelligent person who did not complete high school. Um, and like you, you talk to him for, for five minutes and you can see how smart he is. And he also uh, talked a lot about reading Tolstoy and Chekhov. He was super into Russian literature and he had read, he had read pretty wild, widely and was interested in talking about it. Um, and so I think, part of it was he had that alienated quality of like a very smart person who had not gotten a formal education and had spent most of his life around people who maybe did not value it or were even suspicious of it. Um, so I think that's part of it. He also presented himself to me as like the, the phrase he used was not promiscuous. He was talking about, how hard it was to be because he told me he'd been on the road like 50 weekends in the previous year. Um, I think 48 weekends. 
but uh, he said it was like hard for him because like he wasn't a drinker and he was, he was quote, not promiscuous. Um, and I think in his, uh, in some of his act, he expresses like a humorously uh, skeptical attitude towards sex. Um, I think that like a lot of the hedonistic stuff that most people enjoy was potentially maybe not that enjoyable to him. Um, and that too would be a tough life if you're going to spend most of your time in nightclubs. Um, the, uh, the third quality that really struck me about him was uh, compulsive behavior. Um, it seemed I, I had a hard time pinning him down about the question of when he quit smoking um, to the point that I suspected he was in fact still smoking, um, which of course reads differently now that, now that you know the guy had cancer. Yeah. Um, but he also talked very openly about uh, his gambling habits, um, how much money he had lost gambling and how he continued to do it. Um, and just like his eating habits seem to suggest too, like a little bit of, uh, I mean, I watched him eat like a whole bag of those sour gummy worms in about 10 minutes, like a jumbo bag of them. Um, and he really went nuts on like the bread and pasta when I had dinner with him. Um, and speaking as a person who will like, like I myself will eat a huge quantity of food, just kind of compulsively to comfort myself sometimes. And I, I thought I was recognizing some of that behavior in him. But you, the, you did go gambling with him, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did go play poker um, at a casino in Inglewood. Um, it was a great game. It was uh, a game characterized by players of like very high skill level. And then like two or three people he had gotten to fill out the seats who, uh, who were not maybe familiar with the rules of poker uh, to the degree that they should have been, if we were all going to play for a bunch of money. Um, and and a New York times writer who happens to be a, uh, like pretty proficient in poker, but maybe didn't tell anybody before he went. Yeah. I've played a fair amount of poker and Norm knew that because we had talked about it uh, a little bit. Um, but yeah, one of the other players was Gabe Veltri, uh, who is like, I mean, a, a, certainly a better player than me. I'm going to describe him as a low level professional meaning that he's not like, he's not famous. They're not going to like follow him at the world series of poker or whatever, but he makes his living playing cards. Uh, he used to be an audio engineer who's best known for doing all of Adam Sandler's comedy albums, um, which is weird. And then like another lady who had uh, like spade heart diamonds clubs, tattoos on her fingers. Uh, okay. and all right. I don't want to play <laughs> poker with that person. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you even get that tattoo? Um, <laughs> But she seemed like a, a pretty skilled player, too. Um, and I was very impressed with Norm's play. It's clear that he had played a lot of hours. And he told me that he was also a competitive Baccarat player when he was younger. Or sorry, backgammon, not Baccarat. You mentioned the, you know, that a lot of that something could read differently when you learned that he had cancer and had had it for a long time before he died. And I, as I recall reading, a lot of people who felt like they knew him really well did not know that that he he kept that very very secret i mean for you after you go and you know you definitely had a like a a prior appreciation for his work and and really liked him and then you go and you do the story on him you feel like maybe you get to know him and then when you hear this thing does it make you go hmm i wonder how much anybody knew it absolutely it did uh it uh 
at the risk of overstating the case, I would say it threw the whole thing into pers- uh, into question. Um, because he, even after the piece ran, we continued to correspond by text. Um, and we talked about like a writing project that he was working on. Um, and like, just, I would not, I would not say that Norm and I were friends. I, I, don't, I think that would be presumptuous on my part, but we were definitely friendly acquaintances and we enjoyed talking and stuff. Um, and I, uh, I was proud of the times piece. I felt like I got, I got to some stuff that maybe previous interviews hadn't gotten to. And when I found out that he had died and the circumstances, a very petty and selfish part of me was like, man, how come you couldn't tell me that you had cancer? Like, what were you, what were you waiting for? And I think the answer is like, he, he just didn't want to make anything about him. Um, even a profile about him. (laughs) I mean, I guess that it can be dangerously, uh, it can be dangerous, I guess, to meet an interview and write about people that, that you like, or people that you would consider a hero of yours. Did you come away from this entire experience still with a positive view of him and like a positive view of his work or, or did the circumstances of his death make you feel like it had happened, you know, on his terms or in a weird way, or like, how did you come away from your, from your whole experience with him? Yes. And yes. Um, I definitely came away from it still liking him, um, still admiring him very much. And then also liking him as just a guy. I enjoyed hanging out with him. Um, at the same time I did like, I am an idiot, but I'm not that kind of idiot. Like I did understand that, like he was doing some manipulative behaviors throughout the process. Um, and he was like showing me what he wanted to show me. Like, you don't, you guys know this, like when you interview someone, you don't hear what they think. Um, you hear what they think they would like a reporter to hear from them. Um, you get the version of them that they would like to appear in print. And like, I did, uh, I did come away feeling like I did not get much of the real norm. Um, and that's, I think that's just par for the course. Um, but I also think like the, the cancer news and the degree to which he kept that secret was, was pretty astonishing to me. I think he played it closer to the vest than most celebrities. You know, after he died and everybody was posting on Twitter, like some of their favorite Norm McDonald jokes, whether it was stuff from his book or stuff from, you know, late night appearances or stand up stuff. I, I'm curious for you, what, what do you think stands out as one of your favorite Norm McDonald jokes? Oh, man. Um, so at the I don't, I don't want to like render it, but uh, I love the ventriloquist dummy joke that he did. As near as I can tell, it was like a call in bit that he did for the Dennis Miller show, Dennis Miller's radio show. Um, so it was a few years ago and he, he calls into Dennis Miller and I guess he's like in San Francisco for, uh, for some sort of performance. And Dennis Miller asks him like what he, what he does for fun in San Francisco. And Norm says that he works on his ventriloquism act. Um, and he says he has this, uh, that this ventriloquist dummy, that's a real problem because of his anti-Semitic views. Um, and he, he explains that the, the dummy is a Holocaust denier, uh, a virulent Holocaust <laughs> denier. Uh, and he says, I've just about had it up to here with this character. And then, uh, he says, I don't know what to do about it. 
He says, my Jewish friend says, well, why don't you just throw him on a fire and burn him? But I say two wrongs don't make a right. And that's, that's such a funny joke to me. I assume you guys are both laughing really hard and I just can't hear it. I'm laughing really hard. Okay. Um, but it's like, it's such a great joke and it captures something I love about Norm in that like, as weird as the joke is, it's also like kind of classical. Like there's this whole, like it sets up these elements and like, you don't really know where he's going with it. And then you get to the punchline and like all those pieces snap into focus, like the gears suddenly mesh. Um, and I think that's like, that's something great about him is that he was constructing jokes like that, that are based on like a presentation of himself as like a weird idiot, um, but are not like driven by attitude or like, I don't know, gimmicks. Like there's something very, there's something clean about it. I feel like you could diagram that joke in a way that you cannot diagram a lot of contemporary comedy. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned too in your Gawker piece that I think you have the clip in there, uh, maybe his last appearance on Conan O'Brien, where he does uh, like 10 minutes or whatever of what you describe as Borscht Belt material, uh, where it's just like, you know, my wife said to me this, you know, like disrespectful thing. Oh, I don't get no respect. Kind of like Rodney Dangerfield-esque kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, that stuff seemed to me like a guy who was showing up to do, you know, his bit on Conan and is as there to try to entertain himself as much as anybody else, like there to sort of do or like explore his own ideas about comedy theory. Uh, And if other people get what he's doing, okay, but he didn't seem overly concerned with it. Yeah. And I do think that's a big part of the appeal um, is that he's sort of, (laughs) He's doing the thing that you dream you would do if they invited you onto Conan O'Brien. Like you would do something crazy to like blow the minds of your friends at home or something like that. Um, And I do feel like one of the best, uh, one of the most likable qualities about Norm was that he, he gave off that impression that he was doing it for his own amusement. Um, Even in like his comedy specials where he's doing material, uh, delivering jokes that he's delivered dozens, if not hundreds of times. Um, And I think it's a skill that all professional comedians need to possess, like the ability to tell the same joke over and over again and not hang yourself in your motel room. But I think like he was especially good at it, maybe because it was real. It was either like something he really felt like he genuinely enjoyed doing those jokes on Conan or he had a talent for making it seem that way. Um, And I think both explanations are pretty wonderful. After his death and there was this huge outpouring of admiration for his work, like it became super clear that he was the sort of comic that other comics loved and even when you wrote the New York times thing about it, didn't you interview like David Letterman and Jerry Seinfeld about Norm? Yeah. And they both spoke very highly of him. Um, And I asked him how he felt about being a comics comic and he bristled at the description. Uh, He said, that's a, uh, that is a nice way to talk about a comedian who is not successful. Um, And I think it is kind of a, uh, a sad truth of, comedy or like pretty much any 
specialized pursuit like music or like writing or any of those things where like the people who do it tend to like different artists than the people who just consume it. Mm. Um, and obviously there's a ton of overlap, but I bet the most popular writer among writers is not the most popular writer among readers. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess my follow-up question is what is it like to try to get David Letterman and Jerry Seinfeld on the phone? Those seem, those are people, those are people who are way more famous than the person that you are actually writing the profile about. Uh, And you mentioned that like even getting Norm to talk to you took some, some finagling, like he changed the uh, parameters of the interview before it could happen and stuff like that. Did you have an easy time, like getting these really famous people to talk about them was saying his name, like a keyword to get them to be excited about it? Or was it, was it still a hassle? Um, so this is where it rules to uh, be working for the New York Times um, <laughs> because Willie actually set up both of those interviews. And like I did, I participated in the setup process, but in the end, it's like him using his scary title and the weight of the times to arrange those two interviews. Uh, Letterman was one of the most pleasant interviews I've ever done. And certainly the highest ratio of fame to not being a dick about it. Um, he spent like, like, like you call and you get a lady who is like a switchboard operator and she connects you to his personal assistant. And then his personal assistant tells you that she's going to put him on the line. And she also stays on the line the whole time. Um, but he like for the first 20 or 30 minutes of the interview, he just asked me questions about Montana uh, because he also has a property out here and he likes talking about it. Um, And he's from Indiana, as you know, so he's excited to talk to a guy from the Midwest or again, convincingly simulated excitement about that because there's no way he could have actually been interested in like me or the interview. (laughs) Um, but he was great. And Jerry Seinfeld had unbeknownst to any of us uh, done another interview with another person from the times the day before on an unrelated story and was therefore not thrilled to uh, be doing another (laughs) phoner. He did not. We had, uh, I enjoyed talking to him. I thought he was real interesting. Uh, When he did not agree with my ideas, he made it very clear. Um, And that's cool. (laughs) Well, my last question to you is, I mean, especially since I know you as Dan Brooks, who is a fan of Norm MacDonald, um, but then you also get to know him and you guys are texting and stuff after you have finished writing the thing. When when you hear that he's died, how does that feel to you? I mean, does it feel like a loss in like this person whose art I really enjoyed and would have liked them to keep living and creating it kind of loss? Or does it feel like a more personal loss? Mostly the first one, but a little bit of the second one. Um, I cried. And as you know, I'm not, I'm not much of a crier. Uh, but he, uh, it was mostly like, I felt like he was going to do at least one more show and probably a lot of like classic jokes. Like Norm had he lived, I think would have been good for many more of those classic appearances. Like we've talked about here and those jokes that you like, that are not just funny, but also jokes that you kind of wind up thinking about years later. Um, I feel like, I feel like with him, I really felt the loss of another 10 years of output. 
um, which is kind of like a selfish and clinical way to look at it. But I think that loss is real. I think he would have, he would have come up with some great jokes. Um, I felt sad about it too, because I liked the guy and he, he did become like a kind of a real person to me over the course of the interviews. Um, and obviously like they're all real people, right? Like bad baby is a real person and all these, like all these people that come to us through really strange channels and don't seem real at all. Just seem like characters in the news. Um, but because he seemed like just a little bit more real that way, I did feel like somebody I knew and admired had died. And that's, that's a weird feeling. Um, and I didn't expect it. Well, Dan, thanks for talking to us about Norm MacDonald. This was awesome and interesting. And I hope that people like listening to it. Uh, we're going to wrap it up there, but uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for uh, giving us your insight on Norm, I guess. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it, Ben. It's in the books. The first episode of Doing the Damn Thing. Uh, I feel like it went pretty well, frankly. We didn't know we didn't know how it was going to go. We didn't know exactly what we were going to do. I feel like we had some some good conversations. Uh, we filled the hour and then some. So people got to be happy about that. How how you feeling right now? I'm just going to check in with you. Uh, your first episode of Doing the Damn Thing. You know, feel like I'm still finding my legs under under me. Feel like. Uh... I'm I'm yet to explore the space all the way. I didn't get to my spoken word. I'm um I guess I'm going to say crushed about that. Mm-hmm. But there's always next week. And you know, I'd love to hear from people if they have ideas of stuff that, that they would like to see out of this podcast. We're still figuring it out for ourselves exactly what all we can do. Excited about the possibilities. Um but yeah, we we welcome your feedback. I'll say that. Yeah, put a put a pin in that spoken word for now. We'll, we'll circle back to it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have ideas, comments, questions, concerns, and you happen to be a patron of the Co-Main Event Podcast, go ahead and leave leave that for us in the comments. Uh, we are listening. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow for the Power Hour. Thanks, everybody. We're done. We're done.